morning, Kevin College. Good to see you. Uh, I feel especially privileged this morning to introduce our next faculty chapel speaker, uh, my colleague in the history department, Dr. Alicia Jackson. Professor Jackson came to Covenant as part of the history department in the fall of 2004. She is a native of Louisiana and holds degrees from Centenary College, uh, Louisiana Tech, and a PhD in history from the University of Mississippi. She is the wife of Randy and the mother of Olivia, Jack, and Ella. In addition to being a first-rate scholar and an excellent teacher, Dr. Jackson is one of the kindest, most gracious human beings you'll ever have the privilege of knowing. Her graciousness is all the more striking when you consider the company she is forced to keep by virtue of her department. Green, Morton, Follett, and Horn. As an illustration of her graciousness, she only recently made me aware of an incident that occurred years ago that almost ended her tenure at Covenant before it began. Uh, she, she and her husband Randy were here. Uh, she was interviewing for our opening in history, and uh, we were going down to dinner. Uh, and I drove them down the mountain to dinner uh, in the backseat of my Volkswagen. And I fancy myself a pretty decent driver. Uh, so I'm driving down the mountain as I do. Uh, evidently, others see my driving differently, the Jacksons included. Now, little did I know, but both Jacksons were sitting in the back seat of my car, terrified of my driving, probably slightly sick, and praying, praying that they would make it back home alive. Well, they did. Uh, and even though neither of them will ever again ride in a car in which I am driving, we are all especially glad that they're here, that they're a part of our community, and please join me in welcoming Dr. Lisa Jackson. Thank you for that warm introduction. Um, and I will ride in the car with you again, Jay. <laughs> okay, well, the title of my talk uh, is Nuggets of Truth, uh, the Importance of Remembering Our Stories. <clears throat> now, as a historian, I love stories and proverbs. One of my favorite things to read is actually the book of Proverbs. Now, one of my favorites I frequently take to heart after many years of marriage is Proverbs 27:15. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Think about that. You know, I'm sure some of you heard faucets drip, 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 and how annoying that is. So it's usually then that I go to my husband to make sure he doesn't feel that way. Now, other Proverbs are just downright funny. Um, Proverbs 26:15. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. I love to consider and think about the pictures they tell. Now, I'm sure you have your favorites, and maybe some that aren't based in Scripture. Some of my favorites may be some of yours as well. As a matter of fact, I bet you can complete some of them. Let's see. The early bird gets the? 
Very good. Um, birds of a feather. Okay. I wasn't born. Okay, very good. I'll get a gold star today. Uh, now, some of my favorites growing up in the Deep South, maybe some of yours as well, and some of these you may not have heard before. Um, every dog will have his day, and a good one will have two. Um, you reap what you sow. Uh, there's more than one way of skinning a cat. As a cat lover, sometimes that is a little disturbing to think about that image. But uh, anyway, these are some of my favorite ones. Now, these little sayings have come to mind throughout my life as I've faced challenges and hardships. They especially have meaning because they connect me with my grandparents who shared what happened to them. And these were nuggets of truth to hold on to when life happens. And in truth be told, it's a major reason why I'm a historian. I love stories and the nuggets of truth and strings of wisdom in them. I love hearing about the hows and whys that have bound people together. It's why I love Southern history, rich and full of contradictions and pleasantries. It's why I love African-American history. It's too rich and full of contradictions and pleasantries. As I mentioned before, it was my grandparents who first shared these strings of wisdom with me. Some of the first stories I heard were those told to me by my maternal grandfather, who I called Pawpaw. He was a dark-skinned man, lean and chiseled from years of working in the fields of his farm in South Georgia. He had a kind heart and spirit and loved to tell jokes and stories. Some of the first stories he told me were about Br'er Rabbit. Unlike the Disney ones, his seemed more real than any cartoon character. One of my favorite stories was about Br'er Fox, who secretly ate some butter and a wood chip they used to find out who stole the butter they were all to share. Let's just say that Br'er Fox placed the greasy chip behind Br'er Bear, and consequently it was Br'er Bear who was blamed. The moral of the story is not everything is what it appears. According to folklorist Daryl Gumber Dance, stripped of family and friend and every possible belonging, even language, name, and religion, the kidnapped Africans did manage to smuggle a few revered comrades aboard the slave ships that transported them to America. Characters such as Br'er Rabbit and others were brought aboard the slave ships and to the plantations. Br'er Rabbit had little trouble evading his enemies, for he was little, wiry, fleet and crafty, smart and treacherous. Now, these characters would be also represented in human form, known as Tom, John, or sometimes George. Now, Pawpaw told me John the Conqueror's stories. Now, these stories were about a slave named John who seemed to find challenges at every turn. According to folklorist Harold Kurlander, John had to deal with Omasa, who was often paternal, firm, demanding, and at times harsh and downright cruel. John could be swift thinking or slow 
often tolerating master. John was stubborn, rebellious, and both men were in constant contest. John understood old master's weakness and strengths, and John played down his knowledge to conform to the expectation of this master-slave relationship. Now, many of you may already know these stories from books or movies, but I know these stories because of Papa. He knew these stories because his parents died at an early age and his great-grandfather, a former slave, and his grandparents, born right after slavery, raised him. These stories connected him with those who came before him. But they were also instructive life lessons for him, as well as the slaves who told these stories decades before he was born. As a child, these stories were just funny and didn't seem to have much deep meaning. I didn't realize in all actuality these stories had a much, much deeper meaning. And this was really brought home to me uh, yesterday when I pulled out my old school cassette tapes that I had taped my grandparents on and listened to my grandfather. And it was amazing to hear things that I had never heard before. Well, these stories were stories of survival. And they were passed down on even after slavery ended because for many blacks, the challenging world around them was just as perilous. These stories were born in the realities of slavery and they told Pawpaw and countless other blacks that even if you're the smallest animal in the woods or a slave, you can outsmart the master, you can survive. And as I grew older, these stories took on a much more serious nature as they moved from being fictional tales to real ones. Now, my paternal grandparents are from South Mississippi. And my family and I would spend many a Sunday visiting them. The days were spent with my cousin, who was about three years older than me. And typically the morning was spent making soup out of wild berries, grass, and dirt. Our own special gumbo. Now because she was much older and much more adventuresome than I was, it always seemed we had some hair-raising experience out in the quote-unquote country, as we called it. We would cross into my grandparents' barbed wire pasture, which I remember quite well. Let's just say I learned at an early age why it is called devil's rope, as I had several instances of getting caught with the help of my cousin as I squeezed through this wire. Uh, we would also walk across the field where the neighbor's crazy old mule was grazing. Trust me, this was all her idea. All of a sudden, she would tell me we needed to run for our lives because the mule was charging us. And as the youngest, I could never catch up with her as we were running. Now, that was one of my many adventures in the country. Needless to say, after all of that adventure, we were always ready for Grandma's fried chicken and rolls. After dinner, I would relish the stories my grandparents shared about my father and my uncles and aunts. And I'm not sure exactly when the stories began to change. In my grandparents' story, 
I never learned his real name, but he was always described as a boy. And it would only be years later that I would learn his nickname, Pooley Cat. It was 1920s Mississippi. Now this region of South Mississippi was just miles from the Louisiana border, an area that grew a number of crops, including sugarcane. It was also the South where strict codes regulated black and white interaction. Blacks were to know their place. They were to move off the sidewalk if a white person was walking towards them, even if it meant walking in the mud. And they were not to look a white person in the face. It was also a time when black men knew to keep their distance from white women. This separation was a relatively new phenomenon as slaves had constant interaction with their masters. The heightened fear of blacks, especially black men, stepping out of their place began to be discussed openly years before the Civil War began. As proponents served as what Charles Dew calls apostles of disunion prophesying that black men would, even, would intermarry, or even worse, take advantage of white womanhood if Lincoln was elected. It is no wonder that those fears were heightened when Lincoln won the election, the slaves were freed, and when the war ended. He was helping to harvest the sugar cane. Now the tales are, the tales are not clear, but he got too close to helping a little white girl who was pulling this cane. She fell back, started crying. His contact, even though it was benign, it violated the norms of the South. He was quickly arrested for molesting her. But the local authorities knew they didn't have enough to convict him, so they had to find another way. Rather than take him home, they let him out near field where he began to walk home. But he would never see his family again. They said he escaped and ran from them. And because he ran, they had to capture him and do what they did. And what they did was they hung him from a tree where they lynched him and shot him to pieces. They shot him so many times that the tree died. They asked two men, one of which was a trusted black man whose father happened to be white, to come and cut his body down. Even years later, he would never talk about what he saw. As a child... In all the movies and shows I watched, the bad guys always got caught and faced punishment for their wrongs. So when I asked my grandparents what happened, they told me nothing. Nothing? Even though everyone in the black community knew all the men involved in the lynching? Years later, I would ask them to tell me the story again, hoping that maybe I missed something, that maybe they found some secret way to pay those men back for their acts. But again, they told me that there was nothing they could do. They too were surviving. And who could they go to? 
It was the law, the men who were sworn to protect them that had killed this young boy because he tried to help a little girl with a piece of cane. But that was not the end of the story. For they told me of another justice that was greater than any power they could have. Proverbs 22.8. Whoever sows injustice reaps calamity. And the rod they wield in fury will be broken. Psalm 106.44. But he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. Every one of those men faced a different type of justice here. One man died in a car accident. Was, um, another was paralyzed for the rest of his life when his car ran off a bridge. Another was unable to have children. All of the men who participated in this crime faced justice here that everyone, at least in the black community, saw and recognized. I am sure... There are reasons I could point to for why my grandparents told me their story as a warning about black men and any type of interaction with white women. But for me, the real truth was that in life, we may not get the justice we want, but there is one who hears and sees injustice. For my grandparents, my uncles and aunts, as well as all the grandchildren who heard the stories, the reality of the Bible in the words of Exodus 3, 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Those words were real. The stories my family has shared with me have made me who I am, and their connection with these deep-seated truths have shaped me, especially when I have those hard days. I remember all those stories, and I consider the ways my family made my life better as they struggled to build their families and make a living on the land. It is then that my trials seem bearable, it is why I work hard to tell the stories that I do. It is why when I struggle with failure or hard times, I know I can make it because of the testimony of those who came before me. As a historian and teacher, the nuggets of truth that my grandparents shared with me have increasingly grown precious. As I have discovered for whatever reason, maybe distance, pain, or even fear that the stories of my grandparents' generation and generations before them, many have been lost. In many cases, there is no longer the telling of the John the Conqueror or Br'er Rabbit stories. And in the same way, the telling of a young black boy murdered for helping a girl pull a piece of cane. But these stories must be remembered. We must all remember those hard places in our history. It is a reminder that history is not always glorious. Now, we need to remember the contributions of those who came before us, who not only make us who we are as individuals, but also as a nation. 
In the same way that the Israelites who were instructed to carry stones of remembrance for what God had done for them, the story of his bringing them to the promised land. And thanking him for the promised land, they had to reflect on their deliverance from Egypt and from slavery. And that's what my family's stories mean to me. It's not only survival, but God's preserving them in some of the darkest days of their lives. Today, only one of my grandparents is still alive, and I call her every Sunday, hoping to collect her words of wisdom before she too is gone. So today, I hope my talk inspires you to build your own collection of nuggets of truth from those farther down the road than you, and that their stories will encourage you on those days of joy and those days of trials. So as I leave you today, I want to share with you one of my favorite poems by Langston Hughes that speaks to the importance of story, particularly within the African-American experience, and hopefully will encourage you. It's titled Mother to Son. Well, son, I'll tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up, and places with no carpet on the floor, bare. But all the time I've been a-climbing and reaching landings and turning corners, and sometimes going in the dark, where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you turn back. Don't you set down on them steps, because you find it's kind of hard. Don't you fall now, for I still going, honey. I still climbing. And life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Thank you. The proceeding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu.